You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senator Ted Cruz joined the Washington Post to discuss the coronavirus pandemic, tensions with China, and the 2020 election. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Costa, national political reporter with The Post. This afternoon, we are joined by Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas. I covered the senator last week in West Texas as he traveled with President Trump, and it's clear his state is still struggling with the pandemic. Many Texans are also paying close attention to the ongoing negotiations over the congressional response to the pandemic. That debate right now is centered on whether to extend federal unemployment supplement about $600. Senator Cruz, thanks for being here. Bob, always good to be with you. Last time I saw you, we were in the great state of Texas. So good, to, good to be with you virtually now. Good to be with you. Senator, what is your message today to unemployed Americans, unemployed Texans, who are pleading with Congress to extend that $600 unemployment supplement? Well, I think what Congress's priority needs to be is, is helping people get back to work. Uh, we've got two simultaneous crises that we're dealing with in this country. We've, we've got a global health pandemic. Over 600,000 people have died worldwide as a result of the coronavirus. And at the same time, we've got an economic catastrophe, the worst disaster since the Great Depression. We've had over 51 million Americans lose their jobs. And, and I think the central focus, the central priority for Republicans and Democrats in, in Congress should be helping restart the economy, helping reopen the economy, and helping people get back to work. I can tell you in Texas, people want to work. They want to go to work. And, and so I've introduced this week what, what, what is called the Recovery Act, and it's focused on small businesses that are, that are right now just starting to open up their doors. And, and they're struggling. They don't know if they're going to survive or not. Uh, it, it, it is reducing the taxes, reducing the regulations on those small businesses so they can grow, so they can prosper, and so they can hire their employees back. We've got to, to create conditions where people can return to providing for their families. If we keep the economy shut down for months and months and months, the, the pain and devastation we've seen will only get worse. The answer is to help people get back to work. Senator Cruz, while you pursue your own legislation, Will you support or oppose a bipartisan deal that includes an extension of the unemployment benefit? Well, th th there are a couple of questions there. So there's number one, we've had unemployment for a long time and unemployment is typically limited to 13 weeks. I think it makes sense to extend the time period that unemployment benefits are, are available. And, and, and that, that I think is quite reasonable because this is, this is a crisis and it's, it, it's an unusual crisis caused uh, by, by a virus that came out of China and has impacted the whole country. Um, there is a different question. So, so in the midst of this crisis, Congress passed an additional $600 benefit on top of the typical unemployment benefit. Um, I, I think that was a mistake and it's caused really negative incentives throughout our economy because what it's doing is for a great many people right now, the state government and federal government together are paying them more not to work than, than they were making working. And, and, and that is, the effect of that is keeping our economy shut down. We need to have instead robust incentives to work. And so the Recovery Act that I'm pushing uh, repeals the payroll tax for the rest of the year. What that means is that's an immediate pay raise for everyone working across this country. It's a reduction in the cost of hiring people 
for employers and it's a pay raise for employees. Also included in the Recovery Act is, is a provision that says the next $10,000 of income you earn this year uh, is tax-free. You don't pay federal income taxes on it. Now, why does that matter? Because as an ec economic matter, what really makes a difference is, is the marginal tax rates and the marginal incentives. And, and what Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats are pushing to do is, is they want to continue uh, disincentivizing work. They, they want to keep people at home and not working. I, th I think that's exactly the wrong, uh, wrong direction for the country. Senator, when you say the supplement was a mistake, is it the $600 figure that was a mistake or the supplement in general? What I'm asking is, could you support a supplement that was extended at perhaps $200 or $300? Look, it's conceivable we'll have discussions on that. When we passed the CARES Act, and I voted for the CARES Act, we saw overwhelming bipartisan agreement on the, on the CARES Act, passed the Senate 96 to nothing. That was really at the height of the crisis when we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know what, what was happening. And, and, and we had then a, a Republican amendment that I supported and, and argued for uh, that, that was a very common sense provision that provided that unemployment should not pay you more than you made when you were working. And, and, and what happened is, is that was rejected on basically a party line vote. Essentially, all the Democrats voted no and all the Republicans voted yes. And, and it was interesting. It actually illustrated a lot of the differences between how Republicans and Democrats approach policy issues. I went to the Senate floor. I was debating Dick Durbin, one of the senior Democrats on the other side on this issue. And, and I was pointing out that by paying people substantially more not to work than they made working, you're creating strong disincentives. And, and Durbin got up and, and, and immediately lambasted me and, 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 and said, you know, that just shows that, that Cruz thinks that anyone not working is lazy and just wants to sit on the sofa. And, and, and it, it's something you see often when people are being demagogues, where they, they, they paint it as a, a morality play of good and evil. And, 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 and it showed, you know, I got up and countered that and said, no, it's, it, it's not that at all. It's, it, it's that I actually understand incentives matter, that if you create incentives for work, you get more work. If you create incentives, disincentives for work, you get less work. And look, from the perspective of if you're a single mom, if, you, if you're struggling to feed your family, and suddenly the federal government is paying you a lot more money not to work than to work. You love your kids. You're going you're gonna to do what they're paying you more for because that's providing for your family. But that's a terrible incentive for you. That's not in the long term helping you. And it's certainly not helping the entire economy and everybody. So we ought to be creating incentives, making it easier for people to go back to work. Uh, and provide for their family. I think that's what most Texans want. I, I think it's what most Americans want. Senator Cruz, you mentioned Speaker Pelosi. Uh, are you worried that she could outmaneuver the White House in the final days of negotiation? I, I am very worried about that. You, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have made a, a really cynical political decision, which is I think they've looked at the economy and they've decided we're 90 days out from an election. They've decided that if 51 million people are still unemployed come election day, if they're sitting at home, if they're broke, and, and, and pissed off and, and, and depressed and demoralized about the future. I think Pelosi and Schumer think politically that's good for them and that's how Joe Biden wins. And, and so everything about the Pelosi legislation is designed not to create a single job, but to keep everyone unemployed right where they are. Now, that is a terrible outcome for the country. And, and 
Right now, the Republican leadership plan doesn't actually include all that much to create jobs either. I mean, in many ways, it's just a smaller version of Nancy Pelosi's plan, neither one of which does a lot to create jobs. It's why I've introduced the, the Recovery Act, because our focus, the people who are at home want to be working, and we need to be creating an environment where it's easier for them to work and, and work safely. And, and this is actually an important point to highlight as well, Bob. Part of the Recovery Act is also a, a tax credit for employers uh, to provide COVID-19 testing for their employees. Listen, everyone wants to be able to go to work and work safely. And, and the more testing we have that's reliable, the easier it is for people to keep their families safe, but also be able to work. And I think we need to be leaning in to, to creating jobs and reopening the economy. So you you say you're leaning in, Senator, but is Leader McConnell listening? Has he pledged to give your bill a fair hearing? So I presented the bill this afternoon at the Republican lunch. I've been making the case to, to fellow Republicans. Last week, when you and I both went down to, to Midland, Texas, I spent about seven hours with the president on Air Force One. And, and, and a lot of that time was talking very directly about the president, how our critical priority has got to be getting people back to work. I think people are hearing the arguments. I know there are a lot of Republicans who are agreeing with what I'm saying, but, but at the same time, the reports I'm getting right now are the negotiations with Pelosi and Schumer, at least right now, are going nowhere. Um, it may be that Pelosi and Schumer have made the decision they don't want to deal at all, uh, they just want to go campaign and, and blame everything on the president. And, and if that's where they are, we'll see if that's where they are. Um, I think it was a mistake the way Republican leadership put together the bill, where it's many of the same policy ideas. And so, for example, one of the things in the Republican bill is another check for $1,200 uh, just sent to everybody. Now, look, there are a, lot, a whole lot of people who don't need it, who got that check the last time, don't necessarily need th th that check this time. I think they're who's much to, better. Who's to say they don't, Senator, who's to say they don't need it? All right, well, I'll give you an example. Both of my parents got a $1,200 check. My dad's 81, my mom's 85. They're, they're retired, they're living on Social Security. They got, they got the $1,200 check. They didn't need it at all. Um, the the, the, the $1,200 check is basically what, what Pelosi's approach is, and, and sadly, some Republicans is just basically dumping cash from a helicopter. And, and that money doesn't create jobs. You're much better off reducing taxes like I propose, which gives people a pay raise and gives them an incentive to go work and gives them gives the business an incentive to move forward. That's much better off for the economy than, ju than just throwing cash at a helicopter. Senator Cruz, you said you were with President Trump on Air Force One. I saw you there covered that trip. We have a question from our audience, Judy Heller from Pennsylvania. She asks, how do you think President Trump has handled the pandemic? What would you have done differently? Um, listen, I think, I think the administration, the president have done a number of good things. Um, I think there were clearly rocky moments in, in handling the crisis. Although to be fair, just about anyone dealing with a crisis of this magnitude, there are going to be rocky moments and, and What mistakes. do you mean by that? What was the well, rocky moment you're referencing? So, so, for example, early on, the rollout of the testing did not go well. And, and I think it was a, a serious mistake that the CDC tried to develop all of the testing in-house. They tried to keep it within government. And the problem was the lab they were using to develop the early tests uh, had a contaminant in it. So the early tests were not reliable. And then there was a whole period of time where it was practically impossible 
uh, to get a test. And, th and that, that was a real problem. Now, it ended up getting improved substantially when, when they decided, let's not keep all the testing in-house within government, but rather let's let private labs, let's let private universities develop tests and produce tests. And the FDA had been standing in the way of private labs developing tests. And, and once they allowed the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or, or universities or hospitals or, or the big major commercial testing centers to develop tests, we saw the numbers of tests increase by the millions. And so uh, that was a mistake, but, but, it was, uh, but it was a mistake, frankly, from listening uh, to the bureaucracy within government. And, and I was glad to see that they, they improved that. I, I do think one of the most important decisions the president made uh, was early on, on January 31st, the president halted commercial air travel to and from China. And, and it was something I had urged him to do e even earlier than that. I'd called on him to shut down air travel, but the president did it. And it's worth remembering back then, this is right when the, the, the virus was exploding in Wuhan, but, but it had been somewhat contained at that point initially. It had not yet expanded into a global pandemic. And, and, and when the president halted air travel into and out of China, he was excoriated. Joe Biden said it was racist and xenophobic to shut down air travel into and out of China. Nancy Pelosi, within days, introduced legislation to reverse the ban mm -hmm. on China air travel and, and to have more people come to and from China. Uh, the New York Times wrote, had multiple editorials blasting the president for halting the air travel. You know, I chaired a Senate hearing shortly thereafter where we heard from experts from the CDC and the Department of Transportation and Customs and Border Patrol, and, and, and all of those experts testified that halting the travel into and out of China substantially slowed the spread of the virus, that it was a positive step that saved lives. So I think that was one of the better steps the administration did. And, and we need to keep being aggressive fighting this, this virus and, and, and using sound science and common sense to limit the spread. But we also need to be aggressive reopening the economy and letting people go back to work. You mentioned the FDA. And and just their sound science, the president keeps touting hydroxychloroquine, breaking with his own FDA guidance on that drug. Do you think the president should stop doing so? You know, I think this is a very strange time politically, where, where everything is viewed through a partisan and political lens. I can tell you personally, I've spoken to multiple doctors who are treating large numbers of patients with COVID, and multiple doctors have told me in Texas that that, that prescribing hydroxychloroquine and zinc and erythromycin that they've seen really positive results. Now, you ask me personally, I have no idea. I'm not a doctor. No one in their right mind would take my medical advice. And, and what's strange about this is in today's political environment, everything is viewed through a lens of, of Trump. So because Trump said positive things about hydroxychloroquine, suddenly a lot of the left, a lot of the media said, oh my God, it's the worst thing on earth. You can't prescribe it. Well, no, the FDA said that. The FDA said I can tell you- The FDA offered caution about it. I can tell you I've spoken to multiple doctors who've said that they've seen serious and, and positive results. There have been studies that have shown positive results. Some of the early studies that showed negative results were actually retracted because they had errors and my view is simple. We ought to listen to sound science. We ought to listen to medical science. 
Twitter and Facebook are banning scientists and doctors talking about the data, talking about hydroxychloroquine. I think that's bizarre. I, I think it's wrong to be trying to silence discussion about this. Look, if I was sick, if my family was sick, we'd go to our doctor and try to get the best medical advice we could. But, but in today's hyper-politicized world, whatever Trump said is treated as, well, we got to do it or we got to hate it because he said it. That, that, I think people are more interested in, in common sense and, and, and actually solving these problems rather than everything being a, a political gladiatorial match. Senator, you talked about when the president made his decision on air travel from China. You, you've actually been sanctioned by China because of your comments about Chinese, yeah. the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party on human rights, on its treatment of Muslims, on the new national security law in Hong Kong. But my question is, we know your criticism, you're, it's out there, but what should the president, what should this administration do next? Should it walk away from trade talks because of all the issues you've outlined? So, so it's a great question. Let me answer it in a couple of parts. Um, as you noted, several weeks ago, China announced they were imposing sanctions personally on me and banning me from travel to China. And, and, and I have to admit, I, I, I took that and take that as, as, as a badge of honor. Um, for the last eight years in the Senate, I have been trying to sound the alarm that, that, that I believe China is the single greatest geopolitical threat facing the United States for the next century. And to be honest, for much of that time, there, there have been a lot of apologists for China in Washington, a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans who frankly look at China and they see a giant dollar sign. They want access to that market and they're willing to overlook just about anything, everything else. And I think the most consequential foreign policy consequence of this pandemic is going to be a fundamental reassessment of the United States' and the world's relationship with China. China, its communist leadership, they are murderers, they are torturers, they are tyrants, they engage in, in grotesque human rights violations, they have policies of forced abortions, enforcing the one-child policy, which, which is truly horrific. And when it concerns this pandemic, their cover-ups and lies. So early on in December of last year, right when this, when, when this crisis, when this outbreak was starting, uh, there were a number of really heroic Chinese physicians, heroic Chinese scientists and journalists who tried to blow the whistle, who tried to draw attention to what was happening. And the Chinese communist government, they arrested them, they silenced them, they punished them. Had China behaved like a responsible government and gone in with public health officials and quarantined those who were infected, there's a real possibility we could have contained this as a regional outbreak rather than the global pandemic that's cost the lives of over 600,000 people. So your question is, what should we do? What should we do is a complicated and detailed question. I've introduced about a dozen separate pieces of legislation focused on different aspects of it. One, one piece of legislation focuses on China's censorship of public health information, information like the outbreak in Wuhan of the coronavirus, and it imposes sanctions on officials that are censoring public health information because it's not just a human rights violation, it's also a national security and, and, and a health threat to the United States as, as we're seeing now. Uh, beyond that, mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. No, just one quick follow-up on that, Senator. What about 
putting them, to use the phrase, put your money where the mouth is. What about you and other politicians returning campaign donations from U.S. corporations, corporate leaders who work directly and closely with the Chinese government? It seems like that's that Chinese influence is so heavy in U.S. politics, per your outline. So why continue to engage with them on a political level? Well, look, unfortunately, the breadth of it in terms of big business is is almost universal. Uh, just about every big company in America is terrified of losing access uh, to the Chinese market. Uh, look, your employer, The Washington Post, just about every media outlet, even though they've thrown reporters out, is still terrified of, of taking on and losing access to the Washington market. Uh, you look at sports leagues. Um, you know, last fall in October, I did an, an Asia tour, and, and I traveled to Pearl Harbor, Japan, uh, Taiwan, India, and Hong Kong. And, and it was designed really to be a friends and allies tour. So this is before the coronavirus pandemic, but I was visiting the major friends and allies that we have all surrounding China. The entire focus of the trip was on the threat of China, the military threat, the espionage threat, the, the, the theft of IP threat, the economic bullying. So while I was there, if you if you recall, Daryl Morey, the general manager for the Rockets, sent out a, a really benign tweet, uh, which is stand for freedom, stand for democracy in Hong Kong. And the Chinese communist government, they lost their minds, they flipped out, and the NBA proceeded to just grovel and make groveling apologies because they were terrified of losing the billions of dollars that China represents to the NBA. I was in Hong Kong then. I, I met with the, the protesters. There about 2 million protesters took to the streets. And, and, and I said at the time, Hong Kong is the new Berlin. So you may recall I did a Sunday show uh, by satellite from Hong Kong, dressed in all black in, in solidarity with the protesters because they were dressed in all black as well, and, and calling out, calling out the hypocrisy and I think we need to be willing to challenge, challenge China on every front, whether it is its, its violations of human rights in, in Hong Kong, in China, whether it's censorship uh, or whether it's the supply chain. You want to talk about a big threat to American security is we've allowed so much of our supply chain to be pulled into China where we're dependent. And, you know, right in the midst of, of this pandemic, one of the major government-controlled newspapers in China explicitly threatened to cut off the U.S. supply of pharmaceuticals as, as a tool of economic warfare during this pandemic. And, and a huge percentage of our medicines are, are now manufactured in China. Look, if they were to do that, that wouldn't just be economic warfare. That's actual warfare. They are threatening the health, health and lives of millions of Americans. So I've introduced legislation to create strong incentives to bring critical infrastructure, to bring manufacturing, to bring pharmaceuticals, to bring PPE, to bring rare earth minerals, all back to the United States so we're not subject to that kind of economic blackmail. Senator, let's turn to politics here in the final few minutes. I would just like to add, though, that when you say the Washington Post is terrified, our editor here, Marty Barron, has fought for press access in China. It's we, The Washington Post believes reporters should be on the ground covering the virus day, day in, day out. But looking at the convention, Senator, you saw uh, the president said he may give his, his acceptance speech from the White House, a residence paid for by taxpayers. Is, is that a good idea or a bad idea? 
You know, I don't know. We'll see. And I haven't looked at the, the Hatch Act restrictions and if there are limitations on that. Um, listen, we've never been in this situation. We've never been in the midst of a pandemic where, where conventions are going to be substantially virtual. And so whether he gives it at the White House or someplace else, he's obviously going to give an address uh, to the nation accepting the nomination. That's important. That's an important message and time for him to lay out the vision that he's campaigning on, and, and I think a lot of the noise about where it is exactly, I don't, I, I don't think it's of, of, of huge consequence. The, 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 he'll give it from, from, from a place, and, and the substance matters more than whatever room he happens to be sitting in. Senator, will, will you speak at the convention four years after you offered the president, then the nominee, your congratulations, but not an endorsement in Cleveland? Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I'm happy to, and I'm certainly spending a lot of time uh, campaigning, making the case. I'm supporting President Trump for re-election uh, because I, I think that that the policies that have been implemented in the last four years uh, have, by and large, been very, very positive and have produced real results. Before this pandemic, we were in the middle of an incredible economic boom. We had the lowest unemployment in 50 years, the lowest African-American and Hispanic unemployment ever recorded. And, and, and that, th those are policies I've worked very closely with the president in implementing. I'm spending a lot of time also trying to help Republicans keep control of the Senate, trying to help Republicans take back the House. I think ever since Nancy Pelosi took the gavel, all meaningful legislation is ground to a halt. And about the only thing they've done is impeach the president. And, and you know, I do think we're seeing a phenomenon where the Democratic Party, they, they've really unleashed the, the craziest voices in their party, that the, the people who are driving the train, it's not Joe Biden. It, it's instead the voices that are ascendant are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC, and, and they're pushing socialism. Uh, they're embracing radical positions like abolishing the police, which frankly, Bob, two months ago, if I'd have told you the Democrats are arguing for abolishing the police, you would have said, come on, Ted, that, that, that's a bit nuts. No one is going to embrace that. That's where the angry extreme in the Democratic Party is, and it's driving their agenda. So I think this election is massively consequential, and I want to see us move in the direction of free enterprise, of more jobs, of lower taxes, of protecting our constitutional rights, of securing our border, of keeping us safe. And, 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 and I think the Democratic Party is, is running in a much more dangerous and much more radical direction. Are you concerned about voting by mail in Texas? You know, I am. And, and, and if you look at voting by mail, there, there's number one, just the logistics of it. You look at the, the congressional race in New York, where six weeks later, we still don't know who won, that there are a lot of just problems implementing it. But more broadly, voting by mail and absentee voting makes voter fraud much more possible. You know, in the state of Texas, we allow people, we allow seniors, people with significant health issues to vote by mail, but it's fairly strictly uh, uh, regulated and, and, and it works pretty well in Texas. And, and the history of it, it's actually quite interesting. The Texas legislation was passed when, when there were a lot more elected Democrats in the state legislature. And, and it was advocated for by elected Democrats in Texas because we had a problem of serious voter fraud in Democratic primaries in Texas, where what would happen is unscrupulous political operatives would steal people's votes. So for example, how, how, how do you steal votes by vote by mail? An operative goes in to say a nursing home 
and, and has ballots to vote by mail for a bunch of different people, many of whom may be of well, let, let, less Senator, let's not, let's not speculate too much about all this, right? I, I'm actually not speculating. These are problems that have happened in Texas. And if you go look at on the Texas legislature, on the floor of the legislature, you had elected Democrats saying in the Democratic primaries, they were stealing votes. And it's why Texas passed voter integrity laws to, to restrict voting by mail is because we were seeing voter fraud. I don't want to see voter fraud. We've seen uh, vote harvesting in California. And what it lets people do, if you're collecting a bunch of people's votes, it lets someone who is dishonest send in the Democratic votes and throw the Republican votes in the trash. I mean, it, it is a vehicle that if someone is going to break the law, it makes it easier to. And I think we ought to be concerned Senator, about protecting the integrity of the election. Senator, we have one minute left. Two quick answers yeah. to this. And as a political reporter, will you support Majority Leader McConnell for another term as GOP leader? Look, in the eight years I've been here, nobody's run against him. And he's been he's been voted for by acclamation each time. I have no indication it'll be any different next time. And one last question from the audience. Patrick Rossello of Maryland asks, will you run for president in 2024? I don't know for sure. Um, I, I hope to run again. I, I got to say in 2016, we came very, very close and, and it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. I, I am committed to the principles I'm fighting for. I, I believe passionately in free enterprise in the U.S. Constitution. And so in the Senate, that's what I'm fighting for. And, and, and we, may see, we may see another campaign in the future as well. Senator Cruz, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Hope to see you at the convention virtually, perhaps. Indeed. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.